Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. I met Harry Styles a decade ago, along with the rest of One Direction, when I was reporting a Rolling Stone cover story that, for various reasons, never actually ended up getting published. But I've been a fan of his ever since, and can't say I'm all that surprised that he's become a solo superstar. But my fandom is nothing compared to that of Britney Spanos and Rob Sheffield, who I think it's safe to say are among the world's leading experts on Harry Styles. And as we're about to discuss, Harry has a new album out called Harry's House. Harry is doing something very interesting as a solo pop star. Again, as we'll touch on, he's having pop hits very much on his own terms. His rock influences and vintage R&B influences are very much his own. He's also become an incredible force live. So it's a very interesting career, a very unique album. And here's my discussion with Rob Sheffield and Britney Spanos. You two like Harry Styles. You're, you know, you're willing to be open to the idea that his music might be good. I think it's fair, <laughs> fair I would to say, say. We dabble. You dabble. We in dabble a, in the Harry Styles fandom. <laughs> he has his moments. Yes. Yeah. We dabble. So there is, needless to say, a new album, Harry's House, and it's, it's gotten a very good response. I, I, I like this album. We're going to talk about every single track on this album. Maybe the two of you can sort of set the scene and explain where he was last time with Fine Line and what this suggests about his direction and the, the kind of differences and, and where he went in general with this for you. Fine Line was the album where he set out to prove that he could do everything. You know, his mm-hmm. first album, he wanted to prove that he could do singer-songwriter stuff. He really wanted to show his chops as a songwriter and to really kind of break from the sort of pop mold. So the lead single was six minutes long. Just stop you crying, it's a sign of the times. Welcome to the He was very much making a statement about his own artistic independence. Fine Line had pop songs, it had rock songs, it had ballads, it had really weird mushroom psychedelic reggae, it had a little bit of everything, it had Joni Mitchell's dulcimer on it. So he wanted to prove he could do everything. This is much more of a pop album. It's really laid back and really hedonistic and jubilant and in a really extreme way, which is absolutely wonderful. Yeah, I think also, obviously, so much of the first album was was powered by excitement, right? Like, there's like so much of the fan excitement for the first album that propelled Sign of the Times to number one and made that album such a big success. But with Fine Line, what we saw was someone from a boy band who has stepped out on his own is suddenly becoming a pop star for everyone and Watermelon Sugar and Adore You and Lights Up becoming really big singles going against the grain of what pop music sounds like right now and like what other pop artists are doing. So he's really stepping into the power of him being able to kind of do whatever he wants as a pop star, like in terms of his sonic influences, like there's like a lot of city pop, a lot of funk, all of that. Um, create really massive hits in the way that you know we're hearing with as it was becoming one of the biggest singles of the year so far and that blowing up entirely so it's really kind of a a a victory lap of his own sort of pop power i mean as it was becoming a big hit is really as notable as olivia rodrigo having a hit with good for you a number one hit with a guitar song like that and to say it doesn't sound like current pop is an understatement it sounds like something you'd hear 
in a club by a really good new indie rock band in 2004. <laughs> it does suggest that he's kind of bending the charts to his will, which is a, a pretty ideal scenario. I mean, he's such like a, a live artist too. So that factors so much into what his music sounds like. He has a band that he works very, very well with. He's always been a touring artist, but even as a solo artist, he's really made sure to fine tune that and make that a big part of who he is to his fans and who he is as an artist. He makes music that sounds like it's made, made to be played with a band and made to be played with in particular, the band that he's assembled, as it was, is a perfect example of that. Rob and I got to hear it live on, on Friday, and it's a perfect kind of live song. You know, it's like the perfect sort of scream along festival song. But yeah, it, it does remind me a lot of very early Coachella, 2004, 2006, um, kind of indie rock, like MGMT, <laughs> Tokyo Police Club era. Definitely a, a music cue during a prom scene on, on Gossip Girl. <laughs> Um, he, he should have made a one song appearance at the just like heaven festival oh, just, yeah. <laughs> that would have been great yeah but also you know Brittany touched on that it's it's his most confident sounding album and and that this is an album where he's not really worried about winning anybody over uh to compare it to the national i always love something the national said <laughs> when they put out their album high violet they said the part of the reason that album was so good was this is the first one we knew that even if it sucked we'd get to do another one Mm-hmm. And hmm. this, that's kind of like what this one sounds like. There's a lot of like silly moments. There's a lot of really heart wrenching moments. Sometimes they come in the same song, like back to back. Like it's just like it's a really fun album. And also I feel like the like the first one where I've, I would say pretty much every single song on there could in fact be a single like as it was worked so perfectly. But if, you know, he had decided to go with music for a sushi restaurant first, I think that would have also blown up in a really big way or gone with, you know, like mm. late night talking, like a lot of those songs are really fun. It's really a celebration of this sort of communal creative team that he has assembled around himself. You know, Brittany mentioned his band. Uh, there's kind of nothing else like that at the time where somebody has, you know, he's not doing the tour of, of the latest producers. Anybody in the business would work with him. He works with, you know, this really close knit union of, of, collaborators that he knows well um and that you know he trusts entirely with his aesthetic vision it in so many ways it reminds me of janet jackson and jimmy jam and terry lewis and that after you know the huge success of control she could have worked with any producer out there they were all dying to work with her and she kept working with jam and lewis because she trusted them and, and she knew them and they knew her and that paid off very well for janet jackson and I think it's certainly paying off for Harry Styles. But you can't make an album like this with hired guns. You know, you have to have people who are going to, you know, to, to, to get it and follow your lead musically. Yeah. Tell me about Tyler Johnson, who's one of his main collaborators. He's a fascinating guy. He's a fascinating artist. I think the first time probably the world got a clear view of him was when Harry appeared on Saturday Night Live and did Lights Up with just uh, Tyler playing piano. And really beautiful, really like intimate moment. Also, it was the first time Tyler had ever played the song all the way through on piano. So he was slightly nervous to be doing it on live TV with just him and Harry. But he and uh, Kid Harpoon, they they basically did the whole album as a threesome mm-hmm. um, with, of course, like other input from the other musicians in Harry's band. But for the three of them to sort of hole up and do this record during a pandemic when you know, a lot of it they did at their record company, Boss's Country House. And, you know, 
Harry had the great story on Friday night about when he wrote Little Freak in a Tokyo hotel room with Kid Harpoon. And he said, you know, it was just two friends in a hotel room, not doing what you think the two friends in a hotel room might be doing. He just wrote a song. <laughs> but yeah, you know, Kid, Kid Harpoon is a guy named Thomas Hall, who chooses to be known as Kid Harpoon. He's worked with people like Florence and the Machine and, and actually has a pretty long, really long pre-Harry resume and, and continues to work with people like Shawn Mendes, but really seems to have found a, a, a great place as one of Harry's key collaborators. Most of the credits are, uh, the writing credits on this album are Harry with Thomas Hull and Tyler Johnson and a few other people coming in and out. Of it. So it's, it's, it, it is, it's this very, very tight-knit situation. It's really interesting. So let's start with music for a sushi restaurant. It does seem to be advertising a sort of freedom and confidence in the very wacky sort of synth horn parts and almost Oingo Boingo-esque-ness of that and and some of the some wacky harmonies, like really just a, a silliness and fun there. Perhaps not my personal favorite thing. I, I, I see what he's going for. And what were your initial reactions to this one and where do you place it in the Styles canon? <laughs> such a great opening track it's a song that lived up also to what i hoped it would feel like live too which is just like so much fun and such like a party starter but like i i absolutely love this song it's definitely in like my top three of the album a little soul to squeeze type of type of scatting in there but (laughs) i i i think it's a very fun song and it's again very there's like a silliness to the album i think there's a, a level of Harry both not taking himself too seriously while also kind of progressing like what kind of music he makes and like how he's sort of talking about his life and um, you know using the music as that vessel but like I I think the song is very fun. Absolutely I love how it sort of sets the emotional tone for the album Uh, very uh, upbeat super enthusiastic super engaged super passionate love song that's also this really frothy dance pop song it's kind of great because you know his first two albums were so full of uh, you know, sad songs. There's definitely sad songs on this album too, but the first two albums were so full of breakup songs. And for this to begin with such a shameless love song uh, with, as Brittany put it out, the scatting, I love that little synth horn break, which is so specifically 1986. It's kind of mind blowing. Mm-hmm. Like he decided to be scritty politty for the chorus of this. <laughs> also uh, the intro, I love um, the way that this album begins exactly the same way that Talking Heads' Fear of Music begins <laughs> with that sort of like little like percussion intro. Sounds like Izimbra at mm. the beginning where, of the Talking Heads album. Where do we think he's drawing those silly little ah, harmonies? What is the derivation of that, do you think? <laughs> it's well because like there's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of 80s R&B on this record, mm-hmm. all over this record. And sometimes it takes over entire songs. Um, but yeah, like that that fantastic, like all those he's and how's like, that's you know, very much like in the sort of like, 80s R&B up-tempo roller skating disco specifically. Mm. A huge influence on the record to my ears is Billy Ocean, but like all those <laughs> Billy Ocean hits, like not just Caribbean Queen, but you know, when the going gets tough, the tough gets going. Lover Boy. I don't know what you got, but it plays with my emotions. I want you so much, darling. I think the Billy Ocean level is, is pretty high. Uh, obviously, a lot of prints, a lot of also ready for the world. Mm-hmm. I just think there's a lot of that kind of stuff on this album. There's one song on side two that sounds 
uncannily like George Benson, Gimme the Night. Give me the night. Give me the night. Not that it has the same kind of, not that it borrows anything musically, but it just has that kind of like sort of late night vibe. Late night talking. I like the song a lot. I'll say one thing that's really funny is there is a part that sounds a little bit like the part in Dua Lipa's Levitating that she got sued over. I got you. Not saying there's any liability here, but it is funny. I think if anything, it goes against the lawsuit because it just shows how common the late night, all night. It's just a very common melodic thing. Like it's yeah. a, so I would bring this up as a, a case against her plagiarizing. It's just <laughs> a thing that people do in pop songs. Yeah. Again, maybe place this one in, in in terms of influence and where you think it. You know what it sounds like to you and and what it says about where he's at. Yeah, I mean, I I love sort of like again like a lot of the eighties R and B like Prince type influences on a lot of this album and I think what's what made especially like the first couple songs on the album really stand out to me. I love how it taps in specifically when I say 80s R&B it, this song is a perfect example it taps into sort of the zone before Thriller but after Off the Wall so it's it's got a lot of you know you can hear a lot of sort of a Rick James thing going on a definitely a Ray Parker Jr. thing going on um, <laughs> I'm a huge Ray Parker Jr. fan It's that's you know there's it's even got a Luther Vandross kind of vibe to it, but that's sort of like breezy roller skating again, kind of late night talking. Also, like the really shameless romantic lyrics, really beautiful. Like, I love when he says, I've never been a fan of change, A, because it's a total lie. But also, it's super romantic when he says, you know, I'll, I'll follow you anywhere from Hollywood to Bishopgate. There's a tiny bit of Stevie Wonder in late night talking, which I really like. Sort of hotter than July era Stevie Wonder and and specifically Do I Do, which is a fantastic, brilliant Stevie Wonder song. You could call it underrated only because he's got so many hundreds of famous songs that this is one that, you know, isn't necessarily as famous as some others. But Do I Do is really kind of a perfect template for the kind of vibe that Harry's going for a lot of the songs on this album. And Harry deserves much credit for throwing in an, a diminished chord into Late Night Talking, which is unusual and a very Stevie Wonder harmonic move. Grape Juice, very cool song. I feel like we've talked about Len a lot on the podcast together, but <laughs> this is the time to talk about Len's impact. He absolutely <laughs> brought out the, the sunshine stealing guns. I love that song. <laughs> I know it's up. This song definitely has that. It's a real risk putting like something like this as the third song. Mm -hmm. um, it's so early in the album and it's such a sort of breezy departure, almost like a really sort of giddy sort of vibe to it. There's something kind of woozy about it musically. Yeah. And I, it's funny because at first I thought of Grape Juice as, I, I kind of thought of it as sort of like one of the placeholder tracks on the album. And now I've completely come to love it. It, it didn't take long to totally flip for it. But yeah. it's a song that for me just kind of sneaks up on you. Yeah. Now it's one of my favorites on the album. Also, very strong Paul McCartney circa 1976 vibe, the Wings at the Speed of Sound, which is an era of Paul McCartney that nobody ever <laughs> takes 
overt inspiration from, and I love yeah. how this one, it's, it's, it's a stoned trombone solo away from being an actual but, Paul McCartney but, song. And, and Harry is pretty much on record with you of, of like in that particular era, correct? He loves the, like those late 70s Wings albums. Mm-hmm. He, was, he was playing some late 70s Wings on, on the playlist before the show on Friday night, which is yeah. pretty great. One of them was Paul McCartney and Wings from the last Wings album, 1979, Arrow Through Me, which mm-hmm. is kind of a deep cut. You can hear that this album was made by someone who loves that in addition to all the other things he loves. The fact that this album is named after a solo album by a Japanese prog musician, uh, <laughs> like, like everybody else, I never heard of, of the Hosono House album until yeah. Harry brought it up last year. I assumed like everybody else that it was named after the Joni Mitchell song, mm-hmm. Harry's House which is a great song from a great album. Yeah. But it, it's wild that it's like, oh, yeah, it was, you know, a solo album by a Japanese prog musician from Yellow Magic Orchestra. I completely love that. And <laughs> that's a great album that I've been listening to since, yeah. since he mentioned it. But great case of how wide-ranging and far-flung his tastes and his musical enthusiasms are. As you were the first to note, it's obviously great to have a huge pop star who's an enormous record collector geek, and it's yielding... Very interesting fruit. So as it was, we talked about a bit, but what do we know about how he wrote this and what he was drawing on? It's one of those surprise sad songs. He sort of described it as being one of the the sadder songs on the album and just started off much more dour and kind of has this really upbeat, like we mentioned, sort of like early aughts, like indie rock, synth synth rock sort of vibe to it. It's just kind of a, a very sad lyrically song, but also so much fun to kind of scream along to and has become one of his biggest hits yet. I think it might be his biggest hit now. It might have surpassed it, Watermelon Sugar, maybe? Probably. I think so. It's, yeah. and it's been number one for six weeks. Also, something great. His show, Brittany and I were, were both there for the one night only show on Friday night where he did the whole album all the way mm. through. And something that was great was he totally unexpectedly and impulsively did. He ended the show. He was done. He did Kiwi for the last song. He'd left the stage and just total spur of the moment thing. He came back and did as it was a second time. It was not just more fun than the first time, but also like it was so like, and it was clearly like a, a fun run. He'd done his job. He'd, he'd finished the show, but he just needed to sing this song one more time. And it was really funny to see also the Poe going. It's, it's a real Ramones-esque kind of bop. I just love how it was a song that, as Brittany said, is such a sad song in so many ways, but is so exhilarating and, and a, a total crowd jumper. I like the imagery of him, the confessional stuff of uh, sitting home on the floor and what kind of pills are you on? Um, Going out of his way to, to, you know, to put his name on, on that part. But he didn't put John Mayer on, on this song, which has the line, Gravity's Holding Me Back, which is uh, very close to <laughs> a, a John Mayer sentiment. They're both, you know, gravity is very tough for what, when you're ascending into the stratosphere, gravity is, is something that you, you know. Nobody likes gravity. Nobody no, likes gravity. Nobody's pro, yeah. Gravity Fuck. always wins. As, as <laughs> Fuck gravity, man. In, in addition to being like a perfect three-minute pop single, it's also, it's sort of a key to the whole album because, you know, it, it has so much to do with the concept of home and Harry's house and the idea of home is something that you keep building around yourself to keep that kind of loneliness that Brittany was talking about, to sort of keep that at bay. And, mm-hmm. you know, that he's really playing against type, especially in that verse where somebody outside him is calling to him saying, Harry, you're no good alone. You can't sit on the floor being depressed all the time, which is kind of making fun of his image on some level, but also sort of 
suggesting that you know communities are something that you have to that you need to keep building daylight not to be confused with the uh, lover bonus track different daylight uh <laughs> harry styles daylight this is like such a summer album and that's the nice part about it and this is such a perfect example of that just like cutesy lyrics like if i was a bluebird i would fly to you like i, I, I love i love a little corniness well i love everything about daylight it's one of my very faves on the album yeah. also I, I love that sort of rubbery bass that goes all the way through it and little freak has one of my favorite choruses on the album. The, the title is a bait and switch. I thought it was going to be. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was going to be what cinema ended up being, and I was, you know, it's it's fine. But like, it's a real. I, it has some of my favorite like little lyrical moments, like you know, like I spilled beer on your friend, like, and I'm not sorry. You know, it's like stuff like that. It's I like I like those little images on the on this song, and it is like very cute. But yeah, I, you know, I'm not I'm not always like about. We've, We've gone over this with every album we do a track, but I'm not always the ballad person. It's not where I'm always drawn to it on a, a song, but it is like a fun sort of like little folky little ditty. You see the title Little Freak and you think it's going to be one thing and it's very much not. <laughs> I, I love that sort of the sucker punch aspect of it. I was expecting something very different. It, it's funny. The title also evokes Usher's best song. Let's yes. face it. It's funny that this is a song that's very different as you know Harry mentioned at the show. It's a song that... He and Tom just wrote in a hotel room in Tokyo. Yeah. And he mentioned that it was a song that he wrote in time for Fine Line, but he didn't think the song was 100%. He said he just wanted to hold off on that song until it became totally what it was. Mm-hmm. So he, he thought of that as a song that he could have shoehorned onto the last album. But this this version is more fully realized. Yeah. But the emotional tone of it, I I just love the sort of you know, ironic and self-mocking aspects of failed infatuation that this song talks about. If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Macy's, Adidas, Walmart, Nike, Wine.com, Samsung, Lenovo, Sephora, and more and even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use, and you get your cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. And then we get to Matilda, and, and everyone should read Rob's great piece about Matilda. You were riding your bike to the sound of it's no big deal. Thematically, it does remind me of Pearl Jam's daughter. That's a high compliment. It's similar in the sense of a very empathetic dude 
daring to sing about a woman's past with a very rough childhood. I think this one's already inspired oceans worth of tears. Judging from Twitter, understandably, it's a beautiful song. It was honestly unlike anything I've seen at a live Mm -hmm. show because everybody was so loud for all the other songs. Little Freak, because it's a quiet song, so you could really hear how loud the audience was. And Matilda, it was silent as a whisper. Everybody was listening. People, as far as my eye could see, were just just sobbing and just taking this song in. It was really a very emotionally powerful hush. Yeah. More than any other song is sort of like the nexus of so much of what the album and what the album's title kind of harks to, which is just like, this is about finding home wherever you need to find it. Like I think for a lot of his fans, they've created such like a great community. And this is a song that is about them finding solace in each other. It could be about finding solace and like, you know, any sort of found family or created family that you have. And I think that's such a a beautiful part of it. Absolutely. It's just such a powerful song. Um, So eloquently stated, it would have been so easy to ruin this song. Mm -hmm. You know, a a few clumsy moves, a few hammy moves would have been all it took to capsize the song, given the delicacy of the subject matters that he's singing about, that he's also very cautious. I love how he adds, it's none of my business, but I've been thinking about it. Such a perfect line in terms of framing the situation is, you know, he's the listener in this song working very hard not to be any kind of main character in this song or in this narrative. And that's part of what makes it so touching. Yeah. It's a song about listening to someone and it's a very difficult and tricky thing to do. But okay. what a what a great, great, great song. I wish this song existed when I was nineteen. I would have definitely learned a lot about about how to be a listener from this song. Really powerful song. I'm glad it's in the world, but I wish it was in the world years ago. I have a mini direction or group chats as one adult woman does. And, (laughs) you know, we talked about it. You know, it's interesting because it is sort of this. And I think this album speaks to this where it's like, especially for people who have when you were when One Direction existed, like there was a sense of this belonged very specifically to people who had a very, very intense relationship to the band because it was kind of the beginning of the time where bands can like just like be really big and play stadiums without having constant number one hits and like constant major success in the way that we've only considered success before. And like One Direction, they didn't have a lot of number one hits. They didn't have like a lot of even, you know, like top 10. Like they were just like massive, though, still. It's I think I think this is like sort of the beginning with Harry, where I think for a lot of people who have come through like the last decade plus with One Direction and with him and it followed through like this is like you can no longer gatekeep Harry Styles as belonging to people who have been there since One Direction was on X Factor anymore. Like I have friends who literally just learned about him with Watermelon Sugar, even after me talking about it for many years. But maybe they should listen to Matilda and learn how to listen to when I <laughs> recommend Absolutely. them Harry Styles. You but- know, that, that's actually really interesting, Bernie. I, I actually wonder, I haven't looked at the numbers, but I wonder if he's already in the U.S., outperform One Direction chart-wise. He has, I guess. I mean, I'm sure, yeah. And I I mean, I, I think especially... I mean, the success of As It Was Alone, um, I don't think One Direction had any single... I mean, What Makes You Beautiful was a huge single, but I don't think it... I don't think the way that it charted matched the way that people have a relationship with it now in that way, where I think there's like more of a nostalgia. It's like a kind of retroactive hit in a lot of ways for a lot of people. Um, but yeah, I mean, I th- it's fascinating because it's like I have a lot of people who love as it was and they didn't realize it was Harry Styles. And it's kind of funny to do, you know, how Robin mentioned as it was coming back and being played as the encore when previously it only been Kiwi, a non-single, not, you know, did not, was not a number one single. I would say most people don't even know that song exists in Harry Styles' discography if you have not been to a show or, you know, 
like love him you know have just started listening to him like you know it's kind of fascinating like it's like such a a weird moment I think for people who have had such like a protective kind of like hold and grip on an artist for so long are now seeing that artist belong to a lot more people for the first time I think sequencing this album must have been tough here because I think there's a few strains there's the ballads there's this sort of 80s art, funk R&B slash disco. There's the indie rock stuff. I think they found a way that it flows, but I bet that actually was a challenge. I'd be interested to hear them talk about that, which brings us to cinema. Sheer transition from (laughs) Matilda to cinema is (laughs) one of the all-time great album transitions in terms of a, yeah. a total change up in terms of mood. I think it's going to go down in history as just one of the most audacious. Just a perfect song. I mean, it is just like, I mean, the breakdown on it alone, like I I am just, it's everything I've ever wanted. Like, it's just like so much fun. And it, like, I, you know, I've said, that, I've said this already. And like, I've, you know, I've told this around many times where I just feel like it's so influenced by the way that the live band plays the music. Like during Watermelon Sugar, he would do a very similar breakdown during the live shows where it kind of like had this sort of old school kind of like 80s kind of like breakdown in the middle of it with like the live band kind of playing and like having fun and riffing and him sometimes doing like made up songs during that. Um, So I think that's kind of, it's wonderful to see that reflected on this particular album and with a song like that, where it's just like my, my favorite thing. There's something very funny to me about how he writes this elaborate watermelon sugar metaphor. And then this song just like, completely removes the metaphor just says what he's talking about uh and uh (laughs) i will say someone pointed out something i didn't realize which is cinema is like the the greek origin it's like for movement and i did not realize that that's what i was like why cinema (laughs) i was like why is cinema the title of the song oh i thought it was about a pop star dating a movie star yeah (laughs) like that could happen i thought this song was called cinnamon when i heard i thought it was cinnamon too and that seems like a very on-brand Harry song title because yeah. the man loves to sing about food. Let's sing it. No, no album in history has had as much breakfast on it as yeah. as Harry's house. A pop star dating a actress slash director would be even more uh, precise. I think I bring the pop, you got the cinema. Hmm. I yeah. I, I, what could the, <laughs> what could it possibly be about? It's a mystery. Someday we'll I mean, solve it. It's really subtle, but I think it's for the might, Greeks. <laughs> that's right. Yes. I'm yeah. not sure. Yeah. Ask not, Sophocles. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure. I needed to consult my Greek origins reference text to to figure out what that song was about, but I appreciate the I appreciate the effort. Uh, <laughs> It's like when a song is called Oh Yoko and looking up what Yoko means originally, like, I think we know. But yes, good, good effort. Though. I think it's like- For this song to be right next to Matilda at the, at the very center of the album. And we know he yeah. takes running orders very, very seriously. You know, these two songs that are total emotional extremes. But cinema is kind of perfect to sort of kick off side two of this album. I mean, pardon me calling it side two, but this is a really backloaded album. At this point, like cinema, it's banger after banger. Yeah. We have Daydreaming, which just goes ahead and samples some vintage funk to, again, make the implicit explicit. Yeah, this is a this is a song that I feel like hearing it, hearing the live version made me love it even more. It's so catchy. It's so fun. I want to blast this on a, in a car, windows <laughs> down, and like just scream it. Like, it's so good. Those Quincy Jones 
productions with those nice squiggly uh, rhythm guitars on the sides. And this song and others, the Michael Jackson Human Nature kind of thing, that kind of rhythm guitar sounds. There's a few of them on the album, and it's really nice to nice yeah. to hear. Yes. And and again, that phase of, of Stevie Wonder is, is really key to songs like this. Again, like George Benson, this is a real gimme the night kind of groove, turn your love around. That was kind of when he was in his sort of uh, lush, up-tempo R&B dance pop phase. I really like Keep Driving. Black and white film camera, yellow sunglasses. My number one, my number one. I love this song. I James Joyce is shaking. Like it is just like full on <laughs> consciousness. Like it is so good. I am obsessed. Cocaine side boobs. Choker with a sea. Choker with a sea view. Amazing. Incredible. It's so much fun. I love this song. It is like I've been listening to it on repeat, just like playing it while I'm washing dishes. It is just like perfect to me. And it is yes. back in that the the indie rock slash lencore area. Again, I love that there's these different threads going through the album that, that you kind of return to. A lot of people were roasting the song because it's like so, it's just like word association, just so many things. The way that it sounds and the way that it kind of flows, it's very clearly here are all these things about, you know, this person or this moment that I'm going back to and like replaying and that I love so much. And like, you know, like even just like the hash brown egg yolk, I will always love you. Like it's just like such a beautiful and simple kind of, it can seem silly on paper, but sort of like in that vein of how the song is unfolding it's just like here are all these like beautiful like moments with this person that i i'm enjoying and remembering and recalling um i think that's really nice and i just love the way that sounds it's hard to tell whether it's stream of consciousness or it just seems that way because we don't know what he's singing about it could go either way uh you know i, I i'm i'm inclined to believe that it probably all means something but i don't know where yeah. it goes well it's full of domestic references it, it, it's another one that harkens back to the theme of home and mm-hmm. creating home where you can finding home when you can and finding it in having a very messy breakfast with someone and that the sort of domestic intimacy that's a cocaine side boob kind of breakfast (laughs) yeah exactly you know there's cocaine stains on the kitchen counter from you know the night before i guess when he spilled the beer on on the little freak's friend uh a lot of kitchens on this album a lot of you know but this one has probably the most well-rounded breakfast on the album yeah that there's pancakes and eggs and hash browns yeah. And coffee, but there's a real sort of uh, domestic vibe to this song, even you know in the midst of pop star life chaos. Yeah, and th- that's something that definitely brings the theme of of Harry's house and home. Yeah, it feels like there's like a lot of like almost like inside jokes and memories too. Like it's like this like loaded sort of like you know someone just kind of sat down and wrote down like all their favorite memories with a person and was like, let me just like string this together as to like my favorite things about you know, spending time with them. Um, I just, Absolutely. I love this song. I think it's just like so beautiful. It's impressionistic as, as you were, you're hundred percent right. James Joyce should be scared. He should also be proud. Yeah. In, in so many ways, Harry's house is like <laughs> Ulysses and each song on Harry's house. Brian just aggressively shaking his head. Lines up with, with the different chapter of Ulysses. I feel like this is the sirens chapter yeah. on Harry's yeah. house. For the record, I am affectionately shaking my head in disbelief. Uh, everything good is in this song. Uh, wine, weed, cyborgs, every, it's all good. Edibles. Two, two different, actually, he, he, th- there's two different methods of taking in THC within four lines of each other. So that's, that's good. And that's beautiful. Yes. <laughs> Listen, it's, it's... And 
partly like I, I just love the way it all these images come down to just the central question should we just keep driving yeah which is such a romantic question in itself you know yeah the, the, something about the intimacy between two people proceeding through the haze and the confusion that something like really beautiful about how it comes down to that really prosaic unliterary unpoetic kind of line but just it's really beautiful reminds yeah. of the story Paul McCartney always tells about the song two of us and how you know he wrote it he was driving in the car with Linda they were driving through the countryside he got lost he didn't want to admit it and so they just kept driving around they had no idea where they were going and that's they realized a lot about how in love they were that day and yeah that that story seems like similar to the the story in this song, but yeah. Keep Driving is one of my absolute favorites. And settle it. You got a new life. Am I bothering you? I think I texted this to Rob like almost immediately after I heard it. But this song, I was shocked that De- this is the like Dev Hines is on the album he plays cello on Matilda, right? Yeah. yeah. Like, I was shocked that Dev Hines had no hand in this because this song reminds me so much of, like, his early production work. Like, it reminds me so much of, like, Spinning There Waiting For You kind of, like, echoey effect on it. Reminds me so much of Everything Is Embarrassing and the Salon GP that that Dev had worked on. Like, it reminded me so much of that. And it's, I mean, I, I love this song so much. It's just, like, such a, this is very, in the vein of, like, As It Was, feels very, like, like early aughts, like indie rock, festival rock moment. But it reminds me a lot of Blood Orange. And of course, Blood Orange and and Harry have worked together before. And again, like a very, you know, just a very sweet song. So many things going on in this song emotionally at the same time. Satellite has a different vibe from everything else on the album. Yeah. It's in some ways such a happy song, in some ways a sad song. In some ways, he's acknowledging the gap between these two people. But also, you know, there's that connection between them. I'm in an L.A. mood. Don't want to talk to you. I love that. So good. Uh, To me, this sounds very Bowie-esque. And there's something really kind of like Bowie about the sort of romance in this this song, that there's a sense of overcoming that sort of alienation between the two people. That bridge breakdown, too. God, totally. Incredible. So, boyfriends. Boyfriends, they think you're so easy. They take you for granted. I was pleased to see they said in an interview that actually he was including himself in the sort of mm-hmm. condemnation because without that, I think one could take it, I think it leaves itself open to the accusation of, of pandering, um, which I understand is not what he's doing, but I could see why someone might say that. It's like, oh, he's saying what, what his female fans want to hear. I personally could have used a, an additional verse where he explicitly takes admits that this has been him in the past, but it, it changed the whole way that I heard it once I saw that admission that that's the way he sees it. I, again, I, I would have preferred a verse where he, he made it clear that he's talking about himself too, but I, yeah. I'm sure, you know. It would have been yeah. a different song. Yeah, I want a, a different song. song. I'm, I'm asking I like, for a different song. That's what I'm asking. I like the song being what it is. I, I, like, I like that it's short and sweet. I like that it's powerful. Uh, such a beautiful moment during the live show. This was at Coachella too, where, you know, the, the people who are singing and, and Mitch on guitar and the singers just gather up front. Uh, really amazing to see Sarah Jones come out from behind the drums and just walk up to the front just to sing harmony. Just yeah. kind of amazing. Her, her, her goddess ascension. It's like, oh, like you weren't enough of a Sarah Jones fan already. Look, she doesn't even need <laughs> the drums. <laughs> it's uh, just in a really beautiful moment, a beautiful yeah. song. 
brilliantly placed. This is a absolute perfect second to last song on the album kind of song. Yeah. Yeah, I think like, I know, I, it's very, I think it kind of does work already as just sort of like this, you know, I, I am aware that I also do those. Because I think there's a lot of references in the song that have been in the past songs, like, you know, like, he'll get to drinking, like, that's kind of come up in, in other songs of his, and, and even in like, you know, One Direction songs, like, that's kind of been a, a theme, like, there's a lot of things that you can kind of connect back to, um, you could play a little game of like, you know, like, Harry sort of easter egg hunting with like the way that he sort of even goes back to things that he's said about himself and and a lot of the breakup ballads before um so there is that kind of like hidden reflectiveness in it too it's kind of implicit i love how he introduced it live at the show too and he said as as he said at coachella this is for everyone who's had a boyfriend everyone who's never had a boyfriend but he added something on friday it's for anyone who's ever been a boyfriend or never been a boyfriend, or anyone who has any relationship to the word boyfriend, or doesn't have any relationship to the word boyfriend. I love that. Very inclusive, impressive. Uh, I I do not think it's possible to get more inclusive than that. Melodically, you can hear this Stevie Wonder again on this one, the, the closing track, Love of My Life. Baby, you're the love of my That buzzy synth that kind of cuts mm-hmm. against this the sweetness of this song. That synth, I mean, it's just like, I think there's a lot of like, I think with a lot of the songs, especially the ones that I think have become my favorites, are those sort of like surprising kind of musical um, choices that he makes in them. Like, you know, it's like the kind of the kind of crunchiness that happens in, in daylight or like that, that buzzy synth in here. Such a tender song. I do. I love the way that he has described it as sort of like this ode to, to London and kind of like missing London. I think there's probably a million different reasons for this song, but I, I kind of love that. I, I thought that it was the, you know, sort of the Johnny on the song was like the, the kind of constant, rock and roll Johnny of like many songs, but it is a, a reference to a friend of his from, from his hometown that he grew up with, um, which is also really beautiful. And I, the, inc- that little piano part at the end is something that he previewed when he first announced Harry's house. And that's in like the preview video that he had dropped. And everyone's wondering, is this the single? Is this going to be? And I love that. It's like the final thing that you hear in the album is the first thing that he played for everyone from the album I and mean, it's just like a beautiful delicate exit and he said i feel like his you know his openers and his closers on every album have been some of my favorites that some of his favorite tra- some of my favorite tracks by him absolutely uh this one is such a powerful ending also i love how depending on the mood when you hear it sometimes it feels like a sad poignant song sometimes it feels like almost melancholic sometimes it feels like a a beat banger it's funny that this song sort of adapts to whatever kind of emotional lens you bring to it. Yeah. I love this one. Perfect mm-hmm. ending. I agree. Terms and of also like in- so, yeah, like the, his first two albums, the endings on those are so, so sad. <laughs> like, yeah. like really, really sad. And there's a sense of longing on this one, right? There's a little bit of this like kind of, you know, I think anything that feels like nostalgic or like says like were or feels inherently a little tinge of sad, but it also is just kind of so beautiful. And so there is like this very tender care to it. Whereas, you know, I feel like, like fine line from the last album is just like, so it's so depressing, you know, it's like, it's, it's a nice sort of, there's a tinge of sadness to all three of the, the closing tracks he's put out. But I think this one is the most kind of optimistic and also um, 
kind of more loaded with a little little more joy than the others. Yeah, I definitely hear that. It definitely joy is the perfect word for it. Mm-hmm. But also that it sums up the theme, you know, like as you pointed out, the London references, but there's so much, you know, so many different kinds of home going on in this song that, you know, you can hear the song is about a person or about a place, but it's the idea that home is something that you build out of the things that matter to you and, and defining yourself by what you love and that's who you are. Yeah. Cool. Brittany, is uh, this song in your top five? Yes. My, I like posted a top five and I think it's slightly changed, but I think cinema and keep driving. I, it's hard to tell anymore, which one is one and two. I feel like again, like it goes back and forth. Sushi is def is a hard number three. Um, what else did I put in it? Sat- oh, satellite and love my life. Yeah. Those are the top five. Those are, it's the, that's like the songs that I am putting on repeat and are just like complete favorites. But the second half of the album is, I mean, I think with like Fine Line, the first half was my favorite. And I think with this album, the second half um, is like, has definitely become like a, a very on repeat part of the album. Totally. And also I love, you know, there's two ballads at the end of the, the first half and it's almost like you said, okay, you know, I made you suffer a bit with the ballads. <laughs> like I really put you through the emotional ringer. Now you just get to dance the rest of side two if you want to. And I think even the ballads aren't, um, none of them reach. I mean, Matilda is is sad, but even like in terms of melody, like doesn't go as sort of like as kind of slow as like a falling, for example. Like I feel like all the ballads feel like very plucky kind of like folk moments um as opposed to like full-on kind of like weepy you know matilda i mean lyrically matilda is very weepy but even just the way it sounds is still even a little bit more like mid-tempo um which i do also like yeah kid harpoon's guitar in that song is so beautiful yeah that that acoustic guitar the cello that dev Hines plays is also really beautiful yeah um, reminds me a bit of a hold steady song called citrus mm-hmm. I, I i think of matilda as a song that's very much a sort of mid-period hold steady song yeah but there's 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 a lot going on musically in in each of these songs i i love that it's each song is such a mix of stuff yeah i was thinking that maybe we quietly are in a, a golden age of singer songwriters again like maybe for the the biggest golden age for singer songwriters since the 70s it's an interesting countercurrent again to what else is going on in pop again we're kind of coming out of a, a very distinct period that we all shared of like you know 20 like the ongoing pandemic and everything. Like I think a lot of artists had time off for the first time in a very long time. And I think that allowed them to experiment and think about life and about their own um, perceptions of things. Like this is very clearly a a pandemic album in the same way that happier than ever by Billy is. And that in the same way that, you know um, that folklore and evermore were like they, these, this is an album coming from a, a time where a lot of artists aren't doing the things that they are so used to doing and especially you have someone like Harry who has toured pretty extensively for since he was a teen and um, has lived a very specific kind of, of life since then. And I think probably was able to take a little time to think and, and write in a different way than he's ever been able to before. Didn't Harry say something like the original idea was an acoustic EP or something like yeah. that? Yeah. yeah. It's going to be his folklore, I guess. And then <laughs> there was little elements of that left. It's interesting. And then I get all these bops and yeah. I got to say, 
Love the, love the bops. I'm glad that we, we got this. And that's our show for today. Thanks again to Rob Sheffield and Brittany Spanos. Rolling Stone Music Now will be back next week. We are a podcast. We're also on Sirius XM's volume, channel 106. Download us as a podcast. Subscribe to us as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Maybe leave us a nice review on Apple Podcasts because it's always appreciated. But as always, thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.